0: If you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Our servants team will get one of those to you. Genesis chapter 8. It's always fun when the preacher goes to the very first book of the Bible because if you're unfamiliar with the book, you don't have to look very hard. I don't know if you remember coming to church when you were asked to turn to the book of Obadiah. You look to the person on your right and the left and to your chagrin every Bible has different page numbers depending on the translation was no help at all. Genesis chapter eight, we're gonna look at Noah after the storm. This incredible catastrophic event that the Bible describes in incredible detail to let us know that it was a real event and the reason behind it. And that is because of the, the, the destruction and the evil of men's hearts, the continual evil in their hearts. Next Saturday, we're going to be talking about one of those types of things in our own day, right, and that is about the transgender issue. Should men be able to put on eyeliner and compete against women? A vote? Anybody say yes? Okay, all right. Uh, Who thinks that guys probably shouldn't compete against women? Just... I mean, we're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but seems like a no-brainer, right? Okay. And we live in a day and age where people call what is really good and wholesome and beautiful from God's perspective, they call that evil and the oppression of the church and Christianity. And we're living in a time that is giving us a glimpse of the Depravity that the world must have been in to such a degree that God finally said, I'm going to bring it into this with a flood. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord speaks to Noah, who was trusting him by faith, and he told him to build an incredibly large barge, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall, with three different decks with a door in the side, and he's going to bring to him two of every kind of animal and seven of those which are clean. And we'll see in a moment some of those clean animals used as a sacrifice. But he tells him to come into the ark, it's time, and then God shuts the door behind him. For all these years in Christianity, the last 2,000 years, the picture of coming into the safety and the rest from the storm of judgment has been a picture of Jesus, coming into a relationship with Jesus and surviving the judgment just like the Passover lamb, the the death angel came over Israel and if they would sacrifice this perfect Passover lamb and put the blood on top of the doorpost, on the sides and the top, that the death angel, when he saw the blood and those who were under the blood in the house, they would have been spared the judgment of the firstborn death. There's picture after picture after picture of us coming into the refuge under the blood of the lamb or in this case, it's in the ark that they could survive the storm, be redeemed and restored and have a new life, a death, burial and resurrection, a new life afterwards. As we look at this story, we're going to see how God now begins to, after the storm, we left Noah, the storm has come, it's been 150 days of storm, and now it's after the storm and God begins to recede the, wa- recede the waters from the face of the earth. Let's stand together and sing the, read this passage of scripture, at least to get us started here in chapter 8 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 8, as we look at our message, Noah after the storm. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing, and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters receded continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Lord, we ask now that you would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things from your word and that it would speak to us in a way to know that you remember us. Lord, here as we see you remembering Noah in the midst of his storm, that you bring rest and restoration. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The first thing we notice in this passage is the remembering In verse 1 it says, then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And because he remembers and is thinking about Noah, then this action comes that he made the wind to begin to pass over the earth and the waters. So the wind uh, creating that process of evaporation and drying up the earth. And also the fountains of the deep, which this was not only 40 days and 40 nights of rain, but the aquifer, the springs underneath the crust of the earth, gushed forth. So now he stops the rain in the heavens and he stops the fountains of the deep. And as he puts the stop on the rain and the flood that's coming forth, things begin to recede continually during this 150-day period of time. Now, 150 days, five months, is no small feat to be locked up in a boat in a storm. I don't know how many of you, are we got any sailors here? Raise your hand. Any Navy people out on the boat? Yeah, there you go. And most of us haven't been on a boat very much. Maybe a little dinghy. Maybe you went water skiing. You've been doing this or that. And, you know, you go into a boat. Now, Noah's never been in a boat in his life. Probably, maybe they had some uh, little uh, small rowboats or something in their day. But the reality is, they say you have to get your sea legs Now, if you've ever went to sea, the longest trip I've been on, a a sailing vessel was three days and three nights from the Bahamas to Charleston, uh, South Carolina. I had a friend that he wintered his boat in the Bahamas, so we flew to the Bahamas to sail his boat to Charleston. And I thought, you know, it's fun to be a poor preacher and have rich friends. That's what I thought, because I would never get this experience otherwise. But you know you get and you get your sea legs, and depending on if you get seasick or not. Fortunately, we have Dramamine today, so I had a, a Dramamine one one a day for three days. But then when you get back on the land, then you actually have to get your land legs back because you feel like you're still on the land. You feel like you're still out there. It takes a little while, especially on this vessel was probably about forty five feet long or so. But now as Noah is. In the boat, it's 150 days, it says God remembered Noah. Now, does it mean that God forgot all about Noah? It's just like, oh, the storm, that guy in the boat with all the animals, I totally forgot. No. The Bible uses this term throughout the scriptures. It means at that moment, as the Lord now turns his focus to that person, this phraseology is used. He's gonna turn his focus towards them and act on their behalf. Have you ever felt like God forgot about you? God, where you been? I've been praying, I've been crying, I've been seeking, months, years, the same question, the same cry, the same prayer. I think God doesn't hear me. I think God's not listening to me. I think God has forgotten about me. And you know theologically that God, who knows all things, hasn't really forgotten about you, but you don't feel like he's acting on your behalf in the situation you're asking for help. And this is our human condition. And this is such a comforting thing for us, brothers and sisters, that when the Lord remembered Noah, you see, from the time he told him to come into the boat, it's been five months. And I would think I would just want just a little morning at least text message each morning, (laughs) write a little comfort that the boat's not gonna sink, I've never been out on the ocean with a bunch of animals before, floating zoo. But it's been five months and it says the Lord remembered him. Some other people that the Lord remembered and then he acted. The Lord remembered Abraham, it says God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham was praying and interceding for Lot so the Lord remembered his request for his nephew. So he listened to a man of faith, an uncle, who cared about his nephew. Maybe you got a nephew or a niece you're praying about. Right? You're seeking the Lord. The Lord hears your prayer, and then when he begins to act on their behalf and do supernatural things, and you hear about it, you're like, hey, the Lord remembered my prayer. right? The Lord remembered me. You have that son or that daughter that's going wayward and you're telling God on them. I tell moms and dads, just tell Jesus on them. Just tell God on them because then God will begin to intervene and they don't even know where it's coming from and you can just smile. Oh, isn't that interesting? That's happening. My dad was 35 and my grandmother's praying for him and he's out in Gold Coast in Oregon and he knows his mother's praying for him because his life is miserable outside of Jesus. So he calls up my grandmother. My grandmother's name is Jewel. She says, now, Mom, I know what you're doing to me. I want you to knock it off. She said, no, sir. I done put you on the altar to Jesus, and I'm not taking you off. She's an oaky. She had a really funny accent. An Irish oaky. It's, it's Irish hillbilly. There's <clears throat> the apple didn't fall far from the tree. But the Lord remembered. Rachel was dying to have a baby. Hannah was dying to have a baby. And they cried out to the Lord. And it says, God remembered Rachel and opened her womb in Genesis 30. The Lord remembered Hannah and she conceived and had the son Samuel. One day we were in church. I was in 1 Samuel chapter one and we were looking at the very passionate, heartbreaking story of a mother that was weeping before the Lord in the house of the Lord, Hannah. And she was crying, but her, she was praying, but her, uh, no sound was coming out. Her lips were moving. She's, you know, she's praying. And Eli, the priest, thought she was drunk. He said, you know, put away your wine, woman. Can you imagine you're already heartbroken? You come to church and the preacher thinks you're a drunk? I mean, to talk about not what you, how you want to be remembered. She says, I'm not drunk. I'm heartbroken. I just poured my heart out to the Lord in bitterness of soul. And he goes, Well, may the Lord grant your request. And she went home and she conceived and she had a son. So often it says, When the Lord remembered, it means he's thinking about what you've said, how you've prayed, and now he's going to act. The Lord remembers his promises that he's given to us. In Exodus 2, it says, God heard their groanings, meaning the children of Israel that were in bondage, and he remembered his covenant or his promise with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and he sent them to deliver Moses. Lastly, the Lord said to soldiers, When you go to war, you will be remembered before the Lord, and you will be saved from your enemies. When you go to battle, don't you? As the old saying is, there's no atheists in foxholes. I was a bull rider, and the same thing's true at a rodeo when somebody's about ready to get on a mean 2,000-pound bull. The biggest heathen dog you ever saw in your life is on his knees praying before he gets on him. Now, afterwards, if he survives, he forgets all about God until the next weekend where he's going to get on another bull. But he's super-duper spiritual for about 10 minutes before he faces something scary. I know that from time to time, you're going to think that through life and the ups and downs and the storms of life, you're going to think that God's forgotten about you. And he remembers you. As a matter of fact, the psalmist said, yeah, this picture as he's crying himself to sleep at night. I mean, when the lights are out and you're crying in your own bed, nobody sees you, right? But the psalmist said, the Lord collects my tears. He puts them in a bottle. God sees, God hears, God knows. And for Noah, man... A guy that's never been to sea with a boat full of critters. Don't you know that was encouraging when he sensed God begin to act and the waters begin to recede because, you know, once I know and I am comforted that God sees me and he remembers me and he's beginning to help me, it brings rest. I was oh, okay, okay, God's working, right? I've been waiting. God's working. It's going to be Okay. We see the rest in verse 4, then the ark rested the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. This area, as you see this first picture, is a a picture of Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat is the highest peak in Turkey. It is 16,945 feet above sea level. It's very impressive, usually under snow cap top most of the year, if not all year long, depending on the year. It is in this place that's in the very corner or edge of Turkey and where Armenia, Armenia and Iran all come together in this one spot. It's not far from where we know that according to the Garden of Eden, because we're given four river heads flow out of the Garden of Eden, which is called the, the navel of civilization or the belly button of civilization, which is in the area of Iran and Iraq, because we have two of the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and the watershed of the mountain range of Mount Ararat in that whole region flows and makes up the Tigris and the Euphrates River. So. If no one is family, depending on how far they uh, migrated away from the center of things and the boat goes up, it didn't move. It doesn't have to sail. It only has to float and then it's going to come down by God's grace on top of a mountain so that it can rest as soon as possible. People have been up there. Uh, somebody told me last week that they had a tourist hotel there and a whole bunch of stuff and I'm like, that's not true. <laughs> you can't get to it. Some people in years gone by were able to go up there, this guy in this picture. This is a a, a measurement. You see this kind of um, fossilized structure and it's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide. It's got all the dimensions that we see and that would be like 6,000 years ago. So We're not sure where the ark is. Obviously, it would be a pretty cool thing to find it. There was a guy that wrote uh, a book years ago, and he said he was there and found uh, this wood covered with bituminous pitch and believed it was the ark. But still, we don't have a um, a, uh, 2020 report up there yet, but it would be great to find it. But we don't need the ark to know where Ararat is. And it's a whole mountain range, so we don't even know what part of this mountain range of Mount Ararat that it did land upon. I don't need to have a piece of the cross or to have seen the cross to know Jesus died on the cross because we have all of these eyewitnesses. Over 200 civilizations or ancient societies around the world have a flood narrative in their history because... Oftentimes, though it changes, there's, you know, it becomes mythology, but it's rooted in this fact, this reality that there was a global flood. I don't believe it was a localized flood. Some theologians, it's just too much for them. That's just, you know, God's not that big or God wouldn't do that. I don't know what their struggle is. But the flood that's described in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. It's a global flood. For 150 days, it's the, the water level is over the highest mountaintop, some 15 cubits. Now, the topography was different, so the mountains could be much lower. There's enough water, as I shared with you guys last week. If everything was flat, basically, you take the Himalayas down, and everything was flatter, there would be enough water to cover the entire world or landmass. Uh, Two to two and a half miles deep in water. So it's not a problem of not enough water. But the rest, can't you imagine from doing one of these numbers for five months, now it rests. It rests and it stops moving, it lands, and it's stable now it's just a matter of time because if the waters have already receded to where they can rest, now they just have to wait for it seriously to dry out. I don't know about you, but one of my biggest difficulties that I struggle with is impatience. I'm not a patient person. Therefore, if I have to wait, I get extremely frustrated. I have to engage. I have to, I tell people, I'm an active waiter. Meaning, if I'm waiting, I got to find something to do. I got to read something. I, you know, okay, I'm going to the doctor's office. I need to be engaged some way since they're going to leave me there for 45 minutes. I don't know why they asked me to come on time when I did, and now I got to wait for 45 minutes. But they're doctors who you can't read their handwriting, and they're going to give me something that's going to help me feel better. So I'm motivated to stay there. But oftentimes in life, when we get frustrated with waiting. It's hard to rest and trust. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But trusting means I have to be in his timing. Now, it's not like uh, Noah can get out of the boat, but he could try, right? He knows he's on land. Might as well bust this cookie open, right? Let's get out of here. No, the Lord said, come into the boat. And he believes the Lord's gonna tell him to come out of the boat when the timing is right. The Lord had to talk to David. And he said, David, I wanna guide you with my eye. I just wanna look at you and you'll know what to do, when to go, when to stay, when to come. He said, Don't be like the horse that I have to put a bridle in their mouth because a horse wants to run away with you. You ever have a horse run away with you? Very exciting times, right? Breakneck speed, 30 miles an hour, wondering if you're gonna die or not. And he said, I also don't want you to be like a mule because I have to put a bridle in their mouth because they're stubborn. I'm always trying to get them to act when I want them to act. Now, in this room, I want you to know this is a cornucopia of equestrian animals in this room your horses and your mules, you and me both. Horses and mules. Some of us are always out in front, getting ahead of God. We go, we go do this and we go, hey, oh, I should have prayed. Hey, God bless this. <laughs> it's kind of after the fact. It's, it's like a P.S. I'm going to do this. Oh, God, I hope you bless it. <laughs> right. Some of us are going, I'm not sure God's asking me to do that. I'm going to hang around. You keep getting nudged from every. No, I'm not sure He wants me to do that. It's been five years. <laughs> I offered a guy a position at my fellowship one time to come and be my worship leader. And he said he was really, you know, busy at the time. And he'd think about it and pray about it. Well, he never got back to me. A year and a half later, he calls me up and he goes, he just acted like we just talked yesterday. It's been a year and a half. And he says, hey, you know, uh, I've been really thinking about coming up. And I said, what are you talking about? I had totally forgotten. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you know, we just talked about me coming. and..." I said, bah, that was a year and a half ago. I said, fortunately for you, the position's still open. You still want to come? It took him a year and a half to figure it out. Well, my problem's more like the horse. I usually am chomping at the bit to move forward. Being sensitive to God's spirit and resting. Noah has to rest in this ark. He has to wait now because you see, it's going to be another another 150 days before any action happens. Wow. Another five months of just sitting in the boat. <whistles> Fortunately, they got a lot of manure to shovel and a lot of animals to feed. So let's keep them busy. That's good. In verse 5, it says, the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. Now we're making progress. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So now he, he can look because they're way up on top of a mountain, but he doesn't open anything up. So there's an there's a 18-inch window around the, for ventilation around the entire ark at the top. So he can see some other mountaintops way out there since the water has receded. Verse 6, so it came to pass at the end of 40 days. So 10 months, first day of the month. Another 40 days, a month and 10 days. Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. So now he's bold enough to open up the window. Verse 7, Then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out for himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her, drew her into the ark to himself. He sends out two types of animal. One is a carrion. It it, it scavenges. It eats roadkill. But in this case, I guess it's floodkill. And the raven goes out, but it doesn't need land. It doesn't need anything terra firma to put its foot on. It's not going to eat. It doesn't eat a vegetarian diet. There's all these floating carcasses. Imagine the entire world, right, has drowned. So there's, for him, it is a buffet of choices. So he can live on dead carcasses for a long time. All the way through scripture, ravens, there's, there's clean birds and there's unclean birds. When they're called the birds of the air, that means they're usually, uh, it's a picture in parables of demonic spirit or the work of Satan. Because he likes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's a carrion, if you will, too. He's a, he's a savage. He's uh, trying to make you roadkill <laughs> so he can destroy your life. But a dove's different. A dove is that picture that is a, a symbol, you remember, that John the Baptist said, how will I know your son, God? How will I know the Messiah? He said, well, my spirit will descend upon him in the form of a dove. This beautiful picture of the ministry and the fruit and the work of the spirit. So he sends the dove out. But the dove is not going to feed upon carrion. It's not going to uh be eating this food. So it just comes back. It's like, hey, there's nowhere out out there for me to rest. It's kind of like the child of God. You know, you go out of here, and one person goes out into the world, and man, that is their mojo. They love it. They love that lifestyle of sin, and they're just going to totally go for it. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, it's awesome, and you never see them again. And then the child of God goes out there, and they spend a little time out there, and you go, man, I... I don't think I can hang with that. You see, and then there's the person in between. The frustrated Christian that's out in the world. You know, there's no more miserable person on the face of the earth than a person that knows Jesus but is living in the world. Why is that? Because they have too much of Jesus to fully enjoy the pleasure of sin. When they're in the middle of it the whole time, they're like, I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell. This is terrible. I'm going to bring the judgment of God on me. This is awful. God says not to do that. Wages of sin is death. Here it's coming, right? It's all this fear. It's all this stuff you have inside of you. But the unsaved person that comes into the house of the Lord, they have, I mean, that they're living in the world, but then they come to worship. They also know God. But here, that person has too much of the world in them to actually enjoy worship in the word because the whole time they're just like, they're dull and dead to spiritual life. Jesus said, if you're, I would rather you be hot in your walk with God or cold. Lukewarm just is frustrating for you. It's frustrating for him. It's just, He said, I just, I just want to spit you out of my mouth. It's like I like cold iced tea and I like hot tea. I don't like lukewarm tea. That's not pleasant. These birds are this picture of of those who are very comfortable in the carnage of life. And those who really are drawn to and want the rest and the peace of the ark of a relationship with Jesus. Some of us are here tonight because we're taking refuge from that carnage of life and relationships out there. It was a train wreck out there. Let's go see if there's some hope here. Amidst of God's people. We need some of that. So he waits another seven days in verse 10. And he waited yet another seven days. Talk about patience. And again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening. And behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. This time the dove went out and there's an olive tree. And you've heard this saying, hey, I'd like to extend an olive branch. It comes from this passage. Because you see, the judgment, the hostility of the judgment of God is over. And this olive leaf is a picture of, hey, let's have peaceful relationship now. Let's have peace restored. So the olive branch, if you're going to extend it, the dove was the first one to bring it It said, judgment's over. Hostility's over. It's a time for rest and peace and restoration in our lives. Then... Um, in verse 12, so he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. Now the dove has a place to rest, has food, and, and whether it's um, whatever its diet is that's not carrying in nature. Verse 13, and it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month of the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the cover of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. So now, he went into the ark on the uh, 17th day of the second month. And that's been a year, and now it's the same month, but the 27th day. So 10 extra days. A year and 10 days. And everything's dried up. How would you do if you were stuck in a boat for a year with a bunch of animals... Well, fortunately, it's a very big place. I guess they could go a day or two and not see each other at the other end of the boat if they chose to have a little bit of space from one another. But incredible patience. So they rested. They had to wait. And then we see the restoration process begin, restoring. The Lord had told them to come into the ark. The picture is, I'm in the ark here with you. Come in. Then God spoke to to Noah saying in verse 15, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you, bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So now I ask you to come, come in. Now I want you to go out and bring out all the animals. Can you imagine dropping that door and coming out on land, getting out of that boat after a solid year? The relief, the joy, the celebration. I would just fall on the ground and kiss the ground, thankful to be back on terra firma and outside of this ark. And he's going to, uh, the restoration process is coming out, but... Be fruitful and multiply. He's telling them, hey, we're not, we're not, you don't have to worry about floods and judgment. We're now going to rebuild everything. Now we're going to restore. Sometimes you and I go through seasons of, of storms that we feel a great sense of loss. Like sometimes we lose relationships, sometimes we lose finances, sometimes we lose jobs, friends, occupation, whatever it is. And we're, we go through just a it just feels like everywhere we turn, we're just getting punched in the face with life. And all of us are going to go through times like that. There's nobody exempt. You, you don't get an exemption card from the good, the bad, and ugly of life. I don't care who you are. You go, yeah, but I got it extra bad. There's always a person that thinks they're going for an award. It's not a contest. Oh, my, my story's so much sadder than yours. It's not a contest. Your struggles from your perspective, are very painful. And the person across the room that has a whole different set of struggles, their struggles for them are very painful. The reality is, is that sometimes we're wondering if, if, if the sun's ever gonna come out from behind the clouds, if it's gonna shine again. We're wondering if, if now we're gonna be able to go forward and be fruitful and multiply and, and go through a season of blessing. It's so encouraging that Solomon in his wisdom, this guy that God gave an extra dose of heavenly wisdom, writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that there is, God has made everything beautiful in its time. There's a time to gain and there's a time to lose. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to, um, you know, to plant, a time to harvest, a time for removing stones. It's just... Everything under the sun, there is a time for it. What's your time here tonight? Where are you at? What's your season? You in rest? I think all of us just kind of came out of a storm, and Jesus was in our ark to get us through the last three years. Amen? I mean, the people of faith, I think, were the only people that had some kind of on solid ground when the rest of the world was going nuts. I still see people in cars all by themselves, driving around with their mask on. And I'm like, they didn't get the announcement. Right? They didn't get the report. You meet somebody and you're hiking out in the foothills. They're all by themselves. They have two masks on. They're out hiking outdoors and you're just like. Now somebody just, you know, I was just (laughs) flying this week. They get on the airplane and it's almost like now their badge of honor. I'm going to wear this the rest of my life. Look at me. Virtue signaling like this is what a progressive leftist morality looks like. I am muzzled. And you go, well, I guess that's appropriate. That's, that's good for you. Because we discovered through the science that it doesn't help you any. It's so funny now, after everything, Anthony Fauci in the very first interview said that it was a talisman, a lucky, like a, a lucky rabbit's foot. From his very first interview, he says, well, if you want to wear a mask, but it doesn't really work, it's like, a, you know, if you had a lucky rabbit's foot. <laughs> I've always said, you know, the people that carry, it wasn't very lucky for the rabbit. I could never figure that out. Right? Anyway, I digress. I don't know how I got back there, but I digress. Sometimes we come out of a storm is what I'm saying. And we're wondering if life is ever going to go back to something that was, resembles normality and blessing, right? I hope this Thanksgiving week was a little bit more normal for you. I was in Idaho, so it was actually spectacular. Every time I leave, Calmy California, to go to the land of the free and the home of the brave, my home, and people are out, you should have saw the people and the fireworks. It was outrageous. All totally illegal. They didn't care. They're having such a blast. And uh, just the joy, the joy of sensing freedom. And the burden of oppression. The burden of, of the heaviness of life. You know, Noah and his wife. And the sons and their wives and all the animals. They come out into the sunshine of the beginning of restoration. Be fruitful now. Multiply. In verse 18. So Noah went out. And his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. First thing he gets out, um, God had told him to take seven of each clean animal, though we, we, we don't get... Unclean and clean animals are kosher kosher animals until the book of Leviticus. But God's instruction for him, it was understood between the two of them, whether it's domesticated animals that we now accept as those clean animals, like oxen or sheep, obviously uh, um, uh, pigs or swine are not clean. They had to chew the cud and have a cloven hoof. So you have to have both those things uh, to be a clean domesticated animal. But the clean animals, seven of each... Because he took them, he was able to offer them as a sacrifice to the Lord. And as he offers them to the sacrifice, you know, he's, just start, he's back in that place of just worship. You know, the first step to a new beginning in any season in your life is coming back to the place of worship. It's coming back to a place of recommitment to the Lord. A place of so often people are like, man, I, I went out here and I was a long ways from the Lord. By the way... I was talking to Riley Gaines, who's going to be next Saturday night. This place is going to be packed, get her early, get a seat. Because uh, Riley's in the news about every other day standing up as a Female elite athlete that is speaking out against the trans men, uh, athletes that are competing against them. And we're going to have two doctors here. Riley's going to tell her story, what that's like to compete against men. And to go into the locker room unprepared. Nobody told them all the girls are getting dressed and a six-foot-four guy comes in, gets naked, and is waltzing around their, their locker room with them. And they're just, you know, totally uh, flipped out. But if they say anything, their careers will be over. They'll be the transphobe, homophobe. And she said, you know, I grew up to church, going to the church Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Sunday night. She said, I'm a church kid. She went, I went to church my whole life. And then I went to college and kind of drifted away a little bit. But for heaven's sakes, now looking on what's going on in the world, I am close to Jesus. right? Because the first step of restoration and rebuilding anything is to come back to that place. For Noah, in this Old Testament culture, it was to approach the Lord through a sacrifice offered by faith and blood that covers our sins as a substitute. Abel offered a sacrifice, but the very first sacrifice, when Adam and Eve were trying to cover themselves with fig leaves that they had made by hand themselves, God exchanged their fig leaves for fur coats. He sacrificed animals and prepared for them clothing, and he clothed them, and blood was shed to cover their sin. You see, I can't restore my life and rebuild my life. I have to come first and acknowledge in worship that God is God and I am not, and I'm a fallen sinful person that needs the blood of Jesus to wash away my sins. I have to come in humility and brokenness and confession because that's where the rebuilding and the beautiful things start. It doesn't mean you have it all together. And the beautiful thing for Christians is, you know, no failure needs to be final. Isn't that great? You could have made the biggest mess ever in your life those last three or four years. And you come today, and today's a brand new day. You can be a brand new creation in Jesus, walking with him in the newness of life. His mercies are new every morning. And so in the house of the Lord, so to speak, that's where Noah goes. He offers the sacrifice, and from a heart of thanksgiving, can you imagine, he's thinking to himself, everybody that was wiped out in judgment, I mean, he had neighbors and, and, and distant relatives and knew all these people, and they're all dead. The, the whole populace that he would have known is all dead. Just as the Lord declared it was going to be. Just as Methuselah, the oldest man in the Bible, do you know what Methuselah's name means? Methuselah, it means that when he dies, it shall come. What? The flood. The very year of the flood. Methuselah died the very year the water started coming. A prophecy, 969 years before it even showed up. When this man dies, the flood comes. Judgment. And now he's on the other side of that and he's worshiping the Lord and he's offering the sacrifice to the Lord. And it says, now we have the reassurance in verse 21 and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, when the Lord smells the aroma of a sacrifice that is offered in faith, it says that it's a soothing aroma. King James in the sacrifices in Leviticus 1, chapter 1 through 7, it's called the sweet savor or the sweet aroma sacrifices that are offered to him. Because you see, he offered all of these as a burnt offering. There's multiple offerings as you get the details of it in Leviticus chapter 1 through 7. But the burnt offering means it's a picture. Of when you offer the whole animal, you just offer the whole thing and you burn it up. It's a picture. I offer my entire being to you, God. This animal that I'm offering to you is a symbol that I want to have my life consumed with usefulness and love and relationship with you. And so they're offering, he's offering of all these animals He and his family, Lord, were yours. Very much like Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might know what the good and the pleasing and the perfect will of God is. He wants us... As we surrender to know God's will. And he gives us three different qualities of that decision. The good, the pleasing, or acceptable, or the perfect. As I offer my life to the Lord and say, God, just use me. I want to know your heart. I want to know your will. I I, I don't want to be conformed to this world. I don't want to be thinking like everybody else is. I I just want to hear from you. And he wants to reveal to you that you would know the good and acceptable will of God. Noah's coming out of the boat. He's offering to the Lord. and He's saying, Lord, we're yours. Where are we going to go? I mean, you're it. And now we're it. We're we're the only ones on planet Earth. If anything cool is going to happen, I guess it's going to be us. We only have the gene pool of eight people here. Do you realize that every single one of us that are in this room and our grandfather was Noah and Mrs. Noah? Right? And then we came through one of the sons, all of us. And if you're a couple here, you know, you have a menagerie of those, one of those three sons within your, your life. And we'll look at that more when we get to the table of nations. And that all of us from this human race, this is such a great place because of this whole social justice movement today. It's just from a, from a Christian worldview, we all came from Adam and Eve. All of our parents, grandparents are the same grandparents. The only difference in any human is the level of melanin in our skin. Some of us are pasty white. You're almost transparent. I can almost see through you. You didn't get any. Right? And some of us are dark. We got an extra dose of melanin. But we've all been created in the image of God to have a relationship with God. In all our ancestry, though, it branches off at different points. When you go back far enough to, from Adam, or now, this is a reboot... From Noah and then we're one of those three sons and their wives and that's what the Lord speaks through Paul the Apostle when he's talking to the Athenians in Athens in Acts chapter 7 he says the Lord made all of us from one blood and then he put us into boundaries into countries and nations and he tells us why he says the Lord created all of us from one family and then he put us in nations. Maybe you were, you're from Haiti. Maybe you're from Romania. Maybe you're from Tanzania, wherever you're from. And the Lord puts us all there in, so that all of us, no matter who we are in our humanity, no matter what country or language we speak, it says that we might grope like you're groping in the dark to find God. Every single person in every single culture and all of their struggles, no matter what boundaries or language, all their frustrations, all their struggles in life have one goal, that they will grope and look for God. They will look for Jesus. Now in some countries, it's easier to find Jesus, right? In other countries, Jesus is pretty much outlawed. (laughs) Can't talk about Jesus here. That's why when I met people from Iran... I met these people that there was just an explosion of about a thousand converts in Iran. Now, it's a capital crime. That means they can kill you. If you convert somebody from Islam to Christianity, it's a death penalty. That's how down they are with Christianity. Now, they also believe Jesus is a prophet, but they don't believe he is the son of God, Islam. So you know how God reached them? Because there's not a lot of missionaries showing up. I didn't sign up to go, go to Iran. <laughs> there's not a lot of missionaries there so God began to bring dreams and visions and these people were getting saved through dreams in the night and visions they were having and I met a number of them and they explained to me I'm like blow your mind but they were groping for God just like the girl from the Philippines that we had here with Victor Marx's situation through she was sex trafficked this guy was controlling her life she tried to escape and he catches her and he tries to cut her head off and He cuts her arm off instead. And the only way she survived when she told her story here about six months ago on our stage through an interpreter, she said, I put my arm up because he was trying to chop my head off. And he chopped my arm off instead. And I know the only thing that saved me in that moment. She said, I didn't know Jesus yet. But as he was sawing my arm off with his knife, I said, God, if you exist, would you save me? Would you rescue me? And God intervened. And this guy got run off. She got rescued. They got her emergency surgery. I mean, through, it's amazing how it all, how God just worked. Because you see, in that moment, he heard her, he remembered her, and he intervened in the midst of her crisis. And he'll do that in our hearts. He'll do that in our lives. And then he restores us. And we're in the house of worship. And then we're offering ourselves to God as Noah and his family is like, God, use me. And you know, that's something that's just beautiful. It's a beautiful aroma. There's nothing more wonderful than the smell of a barbecue. Is there? Don't you hate it? I had a bowl of Captain Crunch for dinner. I walk out in my backyard and my neighbors are barbecuing a steak and I go. I'm so disgusted I want to go invite myself to dinner. Hello? I had Captain Crunch. Can I have some of your steak? (laughs) Because the smell is so overwhelming. The Bible says that two of the offerings that, that rise to the Lord, just think about it. One is Baked bread, like you smell baking bread, oh, like you start salivating, or a barbecue, and these things are a wonderful aroma to the Lord, and that's what it looks like for a life. The Bible says that you and I are aroma of life as we present Jesus to the world, but to people that don't want to hear about Jesus, we, we stink like death. They're like, get your Jesus out of here. You have any of those uh, 4th of July moments where that person's like, oh, I heard you were one of those. (laughs) You smell, you stink. You smell like death to them. Well, it says, I will never again, in verse 21, curse the ground for man's sake. Although nothing's going to change with men, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, spring and fall, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. He's saying, Noah, from this day forward, and he's going to give, we'll look at it next Saturday night, as we look at chapter 9, he gives the promise of the rainbow. He's never going to flood the earth in a global flood. There's many localized floods every single year, different regions of the world. So that's, again, why I don't think this is a localized flood, because what good would the rainbow do if it's only a localized flood, right? But he now says in his description that the whole Atmosphere, troposphere, uh, weather patterns of the earth are different. We believe that the, geologically they're different now as the, the water begins to subside. Because the thing that, that people ignore in the scientific world, the only way to have, incre- like so, in some situations, animals, like a hundred animals, a thousand animals, packed into some low spot, valley, canyon, something like that, and just covered immediately with mud and all killed. And they find these huge fossil beds. The only thing that explains any of it is a massive flood. One single thing. If they're just dying here randomly all over the place, they would just basically disintegrate on the top of the, the ground, right? Birds eat them up and uh, coyotes carry off pieces of them and then their bones break down in the sun and they just turn to, back to dust. That's the way most things after the flood die. Not a lot of fossils in the fossil record. So here, massive amounts of creatures are killed all at once and he promises this is never going to happen again. Now, Peter tells us in the future, because the book of Revelation says there is another judgment coming. In the book of Revelation, the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven bowl judgments from Revelation chapter 6 to 19, it is, woo, it is scary when you read it, you do not want to be here at all. And he says, but God's going to judge with fire at that time, never with flood again. But it appears before then, the whole atmosphere of the earth was more tropical, it was more humid, more moist. It was never the same after it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And the, the vapor that was in the atmosphere was condensed to bring it to planet Earth. So it's a very different world than it is, uh, was before the flood. Before the flood, they call that the antidiluvional world. And so um, before and after the flood are described in this way. Each of us, are going to go through our own storms, but I promise you, God remembers you. He knows you, he hears you, he will act on your behalf. Because the Bible says that those who come to God must believe that he is. This is this is what faith does. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Do you want to please God tonight? Then just trust him. That's it. Now I'm not going to ask you to crawl on your knees over glass for a 1000 yards. Do you want to please God? You know what pleases God? God, I trust you. I believe your promises. I believe who Jesus is. I believe what your word says. That's what pleases God. Isn't that easy? Young or old can do that. I just trust God. But he says, it's impossible to please God without faith because if you come to him, you must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. When you seek him diligently, he will answer. He will reward. He will work on your behalf. If you're praying for somebody else, you can see God answer. You can see God work. And you get to be a part of that process because you are praying. The Bible says that the prayers of the saints in heaven, in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, it says the prayers of the saints are filling up this bowl. And it's praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when those, that bowl gets full, it gets poured out on the earth that God's kingdom will come. But in our life, I like to picture it that way too. I want to be I want to pray all the time that I'm filling up the bowl of my life and for my family so that it'll be full of my prayers because those who believe that he is and diligently seek him, when the is time and it's right, he'll pour out the blessing and the answer of those prayers in your life and in your family. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your kindness to us. Pray that you would... Meet each heart here, Lord, tonight in a special way. I just um, sense, Lord, there's a couple of hearts here tonight, one or two, that feel a bit forgotten or they've been through a real hard season and they're wondering, Lord, if you, if you see them, if you hear them, if you remember them, if you're going to bring them into a new season of rest and restoration. And I just pray that you would see their hearts in a special way that you would wrap your arms of love around them and give them a kiss this week to move in that which they're crying out for you to move in. As we're just closing in prayer, if if you just want the Lord to move in something that you've really been praying about and it's in your heart and, and you'd like to see him work. I just want to invite you to to stand up where you're at and we're going to specifically pray for you. We don't know what's going on the people around you. God bless you. Nobody knows. We, We don't care. We just want God to work in you. God bless you guys. He wants to meet you. He wants to remember you and let you know. Anybody else before we pray for those who are standing up? Lord, I just pray right now for these brothers and sisters that are standing and just by faith they're just standing up saying, Lord, I'm seeking you. Lord, hear me. Lord, see me. Lord, move. Lord, move in this this circumstance of each one of them. I pray that you would move in such a beautiful, unique way that has your fingerprints all over it. And they just come into your house next weekend, rejoicing with the sacrifice of prayer and praise. God heard. God answered. God moved. Lord, I pray that you would bring restoration. I pray that you would bring encouragement. I pray that you would bring healing and wholeness to those areas that just feel devastated. And that you would do your work in their lives. And that they would sense your nearness and your kindness, Lord, in love. In Jesus' name.